Yeah. <laughs> 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 what sort of show is this? <laughs> Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Colesford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 12th of February. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? Well, it's where the first Tesco was opened outside of London. Ooh. And by Sid James, like that. <laughs> it's a place once described by Sir Terry Wogan as a lost city, often mentioned in traffic reports, but otherwise unknown to mankind. Yes, it's Leicester! Our venue today is Wigston's House, the oldest house in Leicester, which we think is already haunted from what we've been listening to. Uh, it's got a timbered hall dating back to 1490. And we're performing the show, the Leicester Comedy Festival, the longest running comedy festival in the UK and the largest in Europe. Last year, featuring over 560 shows and over 800 performances. The festival is produced by a registered charity, Big Difference, who work to improve people's lives through comedy, laughter and the arts. And we have an audience with us in Wigston's house this evening, as the festival welcomes audiences of tens of thousands of people. <laughs> so we welcome less than one thousandth of that number to this show. And what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. It's Joe Mungovin, Ben Ennis and Kevin Hudson. So, uh, Joe, you are an author as well as an authority on local history. And I understand that you have some rather famous distant cousins. I do, yes. I'm, um, what, well, my 18th great-grandfather is John Gaunt, which means my 17th great-cousin is Richard III, which means I'm also related to Lord Byron. And I'm also related to President Clinton on my maternal side because he came from the gypsies on the borders <laughs> in Scotland. And his great-great-great-grandfather is my great-great-great-grandfather, but they went to America and we came down to Leicester. <laughs> Distant cousins, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, ben, you've lived in Leicestershire's most haunted house, the Knoll, as a university warden, I believe. Yes. Now, you lived there for about eight years, and on your own for half of each year. Wow, so that's quite impressive. But you could almost be described as Mr Leicester, given that you've held three significant posts in the city, is that right? Um... Can you elaborate? Um, <laughs> um, uh, yes, so, um, well, you won't know this because I was incognito, but I used to be the Leicester City football mascot, Phil with the Fox. <laughs> and, um, and when I finished doing the job, um, there was a sudden upturn in Leicester's form, uh, and they went on to win the league. Um, Are you doing the job again now, then? No, 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 they won't have me back now. Um, it was between 2004, uh, three and four, actually. Um, I always used to smile for photographs. <laughs> and when I signed the contract at the football club, there were three rules. Uh, Phil with the Fox is a mute, so I'm not allowed to talk while in costume. 
the other rule was Philbert the Fox must not make any obscene gestures with his tail. <laughs> and the other rule was that Philbert the Fox has no opinion whatsoever, either way, on fox hunting. <laughs> Which is very hard to express an opinion when you're not allowed to talk. Um, uh, and I think the other roles that you might be referring to is that um, I was the town crier mm -hmm. uh, when the Richard III Centre opened. And I was also the town crier to announce Leicester, Leicester as the city of culture. Um, but that didn't happen. Um, so I ate some buffet and went home. And um, the other role would be, yes, I was the Santa Claus um, when the big switch on happened in 2017, I think it was. And um, they didn't tell me it was being broadcast live on West Midlands News or, or Midlands News to 800,000 people. <laughs> so I just, I just waved. Uh, I, I, had, I had nothing planned, so um, you bring the mascot again. Just that's it. Yeah. Just lots of waving in disguise. <laughs> that's my career. Thank you. And no opinions on fox hunting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was Kevin. So you've described yourself, Kevin, as a poet, comedian, and accountant, and you've rubbed shoulders with some famous people. I'm thinking of who you went to school with and who you went on a stag do with. Yeah, I was at school um, in this is in Redditch. Uh, I went to school with uh, a chap who was known at the time as Nigel Taylor, who you all heard of, um, who, who then dropped the Nigel from the front of his name and just kept the John in the middle. So it was John Taylor, the bass player in Duran Duran. Oh, yes. Yes, and the, oh, the, he used to have girls outside his house. He didn't live there anymore, but they were still outside, outside his mum and dad's house. Um, so that's, uh, that was our John. Uh, our Nige, just known as Tigger back in the day. Yeah, small piece of trivia, not really much use unless you get a really niche pub quiz. Um, and the, yeah, the stag do, I went on a stag do with Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> there you go, and I've been DNA tested to prove it. <laughs> Thank you, that's our, that's our panel. So it's going to be straight over to you, Joe, for your On This Day piece. Okay, so today is February the 12th and it's actually Lost Penny Day. So it's a recurring event that happens on February the 12th every single year. So mostly pennies are useless metal currency. They neither fit into your wallet nor in your purse. So I'm, I'm hoping some of you are looking down now to see if you've got pennies in your pockets. So, but when you think about it, pennies are an absolute real nuisance. They are small and seamlessly almost worthless, but despite putting them safely in your po pocket or wallet, they always seem to wind up blocking your washing machine or falling down the sides of your cushions or your favourite armchair or getting sucked up by your vacuum cleaner. But nevertheless, on one special day each year, we gather, gather up all those ever-wandering coins and make something useful out of them. We could donate them to charity of your choice. So last, National Lost Penny Day is a perfect day to recognise that despite the fact that these pennies may seem absolutely worthless, are actually worth quite a lot. They can actually help those in need. So, the history of the penny. So this is a brief history of our British penny. Now the roots of the English penny date back to Roman times. Before decimalisation in 1971, the abbreviation for a penny was the letter D, which stands for denarius, which was originally a Roman silver coin. After the treat of the Romans at about AD 411, the British sunk into the Dark Ages and relatively few coins were struck. 
These coins struck were mainly imitations of the earlier Roman coins. And de de decimalisation was February the 15th, 1971, which is three days from now. So the first copper pennies were issued in 1797. These coins weighed about an ounce and contained their full value of copper. When the Maundy tradition began, pennies were made of silver, and all the silver was issued and still issued for Queen Elizabeth II, where her last Monday Thursday was actually outside, her last Monday, Monday Thursday in a cathedral outside London was actually over there in Leicester. And I was privileged enough to be the verger to walk the royal party into the cathedral, which was absolutely wonderful. I was waiting to fall over at sanctuary, but luckily I didn't. And I did have blue hair at the time, and I was nicely told by the Dean of Leicester that maybe I could tone it down a little bit for Monty Thursday. So I did. I went blonde for that day. So did you know that Leicester used to coin their own coins? There was actually a mint in Leicester at Northgate, near Frog Island, and in the regular succession from the reign of the Saxon king Athelstan down to Henry II. So an added interest, Frog Island, okay, it's not taken from the bunch of French settlers or an island full of dancing frogs all standing together singing a frog chorus of Paul McCartney. Frog Island was actually Frog My Lane, which was a dirty country road leading from Northgates to the river. The Leicester coins of Athelstan and Edmund, the first have only a rose and the legend of the king's name. Obviously the mint is not there anymore, so you can only imagine stamping the names of these Saxon kings on our pennies. So you've got Ethelwolf, Ethelbald, Ethelbert, Athelred, Athred, Athelstan. And the Saxons seem to have limited alphabet because after the Ethels, we've got Edmund, Edred, Edward and Edgar. <laughs> so until finally, in 1013, the Danes, in their wisdom, brought over, travelled across the sea and gave us a sea, Canute. So moving on from the invading seas, the founder of the Lash National Lost Penny Day, Andrew Sue Coppersmith, wrote a long post about, a long post about her idea explaining what she could do and demonstrate what it was. So, petty change can make an astounding difference. So, now we've got to celebrate Lost Penny Day. So, your sofa, the pockets of old coats you haven't worn in ages, and every other nook and cranny you can think of. You can find as many pennies as possible. If you have children, you can turn into a game, a competition to see who can find the most pennies, and laying them out and counting them. Once you've turned your home upside down, it will be time to count up all the change you have and your children have found and see who's won. Now, the fun doesn't stop there. We can go and spend a penny. Spending a penny means going to the toilet, especially a public toilet. One is usually said to spend a penny. The expression is derived from the fact that public toilets, which were installed in the mid-1800s, cost a penny to go to the toilet. But you can also have a penny for your thoughts obviously not sitting on the toilet, but they were first used by the English statement Sir Thomas More in his book in 1522. A penny for your thoughts is still used today. So, I've tried to work out my maths. Now, I haven't got an O-level in maths, but I've tried it. So, let's say you have 49 thoughts per minute. That's 2,916 thoughts an hour, 69,984 thoughts per day, and 25,544,000. 160 thoughts per year. I know the numbers. So now let's assume that every time you had a thought, you get a penny. But this requires to share our thoughts out loud. So we want to maximise our money, so we're going to think of our internal and our external thoughts. We'll also assume your brain thinks at a constant rate of 49 thoughts per minute throughout the day and night. 
That's 69,984 thoughts per year, and I've got a chart. So, just, obviously I'm only 21, so I've not had many thoughts, but this chap here, Badfuss, he's 49 years old today. Today, today, in 1974, we heard those first words about Emily looking in her shop and waking up Badfuss. So, Badpuss is 49, and we know Badpuss had a lot of thoughts. So, Badpuss would have 12,500,000 pounds worth of thoughts in his lifetime. And me being 21 has got 5,100,000 thoughts, pennies. So, that's how much I'm worth. But yeah, Badpuss, 49 today. So, the last step is decide what to do with your money when you found it. You can search for a charity that produced the money, write a cheque, doesn't matter how big or how small it is, every penny counts. Or, you could think about, with the money that you found, how many bowls of soup could buy a homeless person, or how much dog and cat food you could buy. So, alternatively, you could, take that, take, you could go uptown, buy a cup of coffee and a sandwich for somebody who sits on the same bench every day. So whatever you choose to spend your money on, you found ways to remember small gestures can mean the most out of all those in need. And that's my only day for today. I've also, with the little bag puss, I found the names of the mice. Because they didn't have mice. We've got, I've got to say, I found this today. Jenny Mouse, Janie Mouse, Lizzie Mouse, Eddie Mouse, and Willie Mouse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the little so, so they weren't Anglo Saxons? They didn't no, they didn't get afterwards. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm going to do uh, a segue piece for On This Day. So it's on this day in 1759 that Benjamin Franklin received a doctorate from St Andrews University. So, questions to the panel. The first question Benjamin Franklin is the only person to have signed all four of the documents that helped to create the United States. So, what were those? What do they include? Democracy? Democracy? Is that a document? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about American history. Um. Independence? Declaration of Independence? Yeah, yep, Declaration of Independence, yeah, 1776, yeah, that's one of them. Um, How um, to sketch your name on a mountain? <laughs> Face on a mountain? No, it no, wasn't a, a, a do it all. No, okay. no it needed some. Uh, something to do with land from the Native something. Americans, or is that the. Yeah. Okay, so it's proven too tough. So, yeah, okay. Declaration of Independence, 1776. There was the Treaty of Alliance, Amity, and Commerce with France in 1778. There was the Treaty of Peace between England, France, and the United States in 1782. And then there was the Constitution itself in 1787. So, there we go. Um, in addition, Franklin helped to write parts of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He was a diplomat and ambassador to France and Sweden. Some true or false questions then. True or false, he flew a kite in a thunderstorm which was struck by lightning and so was the first person to prove that lightning was a form of electricity. You think it's true? It's gone. Can't yeah. make that at all. Well, I've heard that, but it doesn't mean it's true. So I'll say false. Well, I'm going to joke because Joe knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, according to Franklin himself, during a thunderstorm in Philadelphia in June 1752, he tied a key to a hemp string attached to a kite to try and prove that lightning was a form of electricity. Now, he wasn't actually struck by lightning, so that bit's false, because that probably would have killed him. He did, though, effectively invent the lightning rod, which was attached to the kite, 
and he saw a spark when he went to touch the key and managed to collect electrical charge via the string in a device which was called a Leyden jar. However, Franklin was not the first person to demonstrate the electrical nature of lightning. Just a month earlier, Thomas Francois Dalibar in France had actually achieved the same result, but I haven't heard of him before. <laughs> no. And a year after Franklin, Baltic physicist Georg Wilhelm Rickmann attempted a similar experiment, but he was killed when he was struck by a ball lightning. <laughs> so it's not a safe thing to try and do. Uh, Franklin, though, was the first person to use the terms positive and negative in relation to electricity. He did that in 1747. So, true or false, uh, some of his inventions, he's famous for his inventions. So, one, did he invent some swimming aids? Someone had to. Swimming aids. True, true, because it sounds like he invented everything. He sounds like an 18th century Donald Trump. And he's just taking credit. He's taking credit for everything. It was me that did it first, and I got 50 on a golf course. I'd say no. False. You see, I, sh I should really be, for the purpose of this, I should be guessing before Joe, because I'm just going to say whatever Joe says. So, well, false. Well, it, it, it's true. No, Joe. Oh, uh, at the age of 11, he invented a pair of oval wooden hand paddles with thumb holes that he used to propel himself faster when swimming in the Charles River in Boston. Did, did he not just fall into the water for carrying a pair of table tennis bats? Who knows how he actually came... You know, well, that's often the way these things happen, isn't it? Poss possibly, possibly. So, true or false, did he invent bifocals? I'm not answering anything now. You know, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, he did. No, false. I, I buy focals from Specs. Yeah, mine. We do buy focals, yeah. Oh... Uh, you can read it on there if you want to. Um, I can't see it, it's all blurry. You need to buy focus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ben's, Ben's vision deteriorated as he grew older. So he loved to read and he grew tired of switching between two pairs of glasses. One that helped him to see things close, another farther away. So he cut the lenses from both pairs in half, put them together and thus invented bifocals. So it's true. Oh. Right, with that, Joe. right uh, this has taken a turn for the worse, but number three, did he invent the flexible catheter? <laughs> <laughs> he was just doing more. <laughs> Playing table tennis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I dispense them at work, but I've <laughs> invented them. Uh, I'd say so, false. so were they false. stiff before with them? Oh, that doesn't make I don't know where you're going with that one. <laughs> an, an inflexible catheter. Um, no. 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 no you're all saying no. false. Yeah. So his brother had bladder stones, and at the time catheters were just rigid metal tubes. Oh. So in 1752, Franklin invented a flexible catheter made of hinged segments of tubes. He had a silversmith make one to his design, which he then sent to his brother with instructions and best wishes. <laughs> Sorry, some people are in tears on the front row there. Uh, okay, true or false, you know, it's, it's, you know the way it's gone so far. He invented a musical instrument called the harmonica, designed to mimic the sound that a wet finger makes when rubbed along the rim of a glass. <laughs> You've just made this up. Yeah, I'm just thinking that. I'd say I'm saying false. Harmonica or harmonica? No, it's an harmonica. An harmonica. Yeah. After Monica. Yeah. After harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was invented yeah, by harmonica. harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going true on that one. Yeah, I'm going true as well, actually. It's oh, just, oh it, is, it, is true. it is true. It is true. Uh, the first prototype harmonica was made in 1761 by a London glassmaker for him. It had 37 glass orbs of different 
sizes and pitches which are mounted on the spindle and controlled by a foot pedal. To play the instrument, the user would wet their fingers, rotate the apparatus, and then touch the glass pieces to create individual tones or melodies. And it was hugely popular. Uh, music was composed for the harmonica by none other than Mozart, Beethoven, and Strauss. <laughs> you need a foot pedal. No, uh, need more gin. <laughs> uh, Franklin never actually patented any of his inventions, believing that they should be given freely and generously to all. So, harmonica, or harmonica, true or false, do you think Benjamin Franklin had an English accent? Just, just say yeah. Yeah, say true. Yeah, true. Any, yeah, we're going to say yes, any, he did any, for some reason. Any justification for your... No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Wild guess. No, yeah, Same. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he would have had an English accent, whatever that was at the time. Um, although his father, was Josiah, was born in Northamptonshire, he actually moved to the colonies in 1682 at the age of 25, and Benjamin was only born in 1706. But uh, Franklin spent quite a lot of time in England, as well as having an English father. So he lived in London for two years from 1724, and for seven years from 1757. And he was actually living in London when he received that doctorate from St Andrews on this day in 1759. So the chances are he probably spoke whatever accent a lot of English people had at the time. He was actually one of the last of the founding fathers to advocate separation from Britain, instead pushing for a peaceful compromise and the preservation of the empire. When the Boston Tea Party took place in 1773, he called it an act of violent injustice and insisted that the East India Company should be compensated for its losses. He was suspected by some of actually being a British spy before he came out in favour of independence. He had an illegitimate son called William, who remained a staunch Tory and branded the Patriots intemperate zealots and who refused to resign his post as the royal governor of New Jersey and therefore ended up in prison for two years. Right, final one of true or false. Women in France imitated Franklin by wearing oversized wigs in a style called coiffure à la Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm going to go true. True. It's going yeah. so well. Oh, you think this is true? No, true. load of rubbish. No, load I think rubbish. it's true. No, yeah. it's not right. They had great big wigs. So they were Tories or wigs, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. See? Yeah. In 1776, the Continental Congress sent Franklin to France to seek military aid for the revolution. The 70-year-old was already world-renowned for his lighting experiments, but his fame soared to new heights after his arrival in Paris. Franklin capitalised on the French conception of Americans as rustic frontiersmen by dressing plainly and wearing a fur hat, which soon became his trademark and appeared in countless French portraits and medallions. Frenchmen who were sympathetic to the American Revolution donned fur caps as well, and French women fashioned their hair in coiffures à la Franklin, a style that mimicked the shape of Franklin's famous topper. So you could say Franklin was pelted and yet not pelted, because he was so popular. <laughs> and on that great note, over to you, Ben, for your topic. Okay. Um, thanks, Richard. And uh, thanks for that introduction earlier as well. Um, the last time a compere introduced me onto a stage, um, he actually described me as a slightly tubby Mozart. <laughs> um, and uh, just to say 
just something very briefly about the building. Um, uh, Wigson's house was built in 1480 and it used to be Leicester's oldest building. So, um, and it was the, it, you're still thinking about that, aren't you? Um, it, it still is Leicester's oldest building. Um, but it wasn't Leicester's oldest building when the buildings were already here when it was built, but they've subsequently been demolished in the 60s. Um, you've got to keep up. So, um, and it was built by Roger Wigston, and he was a wool merchant. And in medieval times, um, they used to, I don't know if you know this, they used to urinate on the wool in order to dye it. And this is actually a practice that has continued to this day in the warehouses of Sports Direct. <laughs> um, they don't get paid for the toilet breaks. So. Um, so for my topic today, I'd like to talk about uh, x-rays. In uh, February 1896, the first medical x-rays were used in Canada. And x-rays had been discovered uh, approximately one year previously in 1895 by Wilhelm Rundgren. His discovery led to the inventor Edison to pass x-rays through crystals to make them fluoresce inside a glass ball. Uh, it was a real light bulb, light bulb moment, um, <laughs> literally. Um, up until then, when people had an idea, it was a gas lamp that would appear above their head. <laughs> Um, and this was a completely unpredicted result, um, which is particularly ironic, considering it occurred within a crystal ball. <laughs> um, and it was the most unlikely prediction since Nostradamus predicted the birth of his own grandmother. Um, the experiment was performed in the famous Royal Hospital, um, which was designed by Sir Christopher Wren in 1696, and coincidentally was the same hospital he was born in. You know, keep up with it. Um, and it used to be the oldest hospital in London. <laughs> I'm not going through all that again. Um, he designed it in 1696 to restore a lot of the damage that had been caused by the Great Fire um, to the hospitals, churches and buildings uh, in general. Um, so the, uh, the Great Fire. There is a saying, um, you've probably heard it, London's burning, London's burning, fetch the engines, fetch the engines. The Great Fire of London was in 1666 and the internal combustion engine was invented in 1898. <laughs> I think I know what went wrong. <laughs> the engines arrived 232 years too late. <laughs> um, anyway, I, do, I digress. Um, Rundgren uh, graduated from Zurich Polytechnic later renamed De Montfort University. <laughs> he was a genius with a photographic memory, although in the 19th century it did take quite a long time to develop. <laughs> um, he actually discovered x-rays whilst taking a selfie. Um, so the bare bones of his idea were visible. Oh, don't... Come on. I only wrote this this morning. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, he was um, tutored by the eminent professor, uh, August Kunt. Um, he, he was obviously bullied at school um, <laughs> because of his name, August. <laughs> um, they, they called him August after uh, July. 
<laughs> and he had, it, it was rare, you can Google him, August Kunt. He had three sisters, uh, April, May and June, uh, all cunts, and all of... <laughs> all of this led to this week in history, in 1896, uh, Professor John Cox passed X-ray radiation through a person for the first time. Uh, and that was in order to find a bullet that had been lodged in the man's leg. Uh, what the history books uh, don't tell us was that Professor John Cox was the person that shot him. <laughs> it's nothing to do with medical science. It's because the man had bullied him at school for having the name John Cox. <laughs> um, just, just most of this is true. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it with you to work out which bits I've made up um, for transparency. Oh. Come on. Come on. Some of you only paid six quid. Um, so just some asides before I finish. Um, uh, has anyone, everyone had an x-ray? Has anyone not had an x-ray? I think you need one. Um, so, we'll do it, but seriously, go, 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 go check out. Um, so if you go for an x-ray, they put you against some kind of plate um, and then they run off and dive into what looks like a reinforced concrete bunker. <laughs> they talk to you from a tannoy and tell you that it's perfectly safe <laughs> before passing high energy radiation through you. Um, so the radiation passes through your body at 0.2 of a millisecond. Um, but they are doing this all day every week so it's not health and safety gone mad that's what that's what i'm saying um the early x-rays which i've mentioned uh, would pass through the person to get the image for up to 40 minutes and that's um a, a term that i've coined uh, and it's called health and safety gone awry which is the opposite of health and safety gone mad and i'd like you all to use it please um because people are always saying it's health and safety gone mad so just to counterbalance it if you think something's gone, you know, looking dangerous, use that phrase. Um, I want it to go into the common parlance. Health and safety got awry, okay? Sorry, I've got a bit angry there. Um, but um, people who were ill uh, were having x-rays for their ailments, and they were dying soon after, so it was very difficult to, to uh, find whether it was the illness or the x-rays that were killing them. Um, but the, the penny dropped when a lot of the young, sort of healthy scientists were also dying, um, and then they realised that it was, it was quite, it was very dangerous, not quite dangerous, it was killing them. Um, so, to finish, um, always trust your radiologist, never lie to them, uh, because they can see right through you. <laughs> if you use x-ray specs, uh, have supervision. Uh, never date a radiologist, um, as they will see other people behind your back. <laughs> and that would be a bad idea on reflection. And... Uh, even worse, never marry anyone called Raymond, because if you break up, they will become your ex-Ray. So, um, I, I wanted to finish on a big joke, but that won't happen. Um, so that's a potted history of ex-rays. Thank you.
So, uh, my second segue, please. Question to the panel. On this day in 1832, Ecuador annexed which islands? Falkland? No. Easter? Silly Island? Yeah. <laughs> so I was just being silly. It's a silly island. Very silly. Well, I, I just know it's on the equator, hence the name, but I can't think of any. Okay. It, was, it was the Galapagos. Ah. Yes. Oh. If there was points, you get points. And what does Galapagos mean in English? Lots of tortoises. Yeah. <laughs> it means tortoise. Oh, there you go. Flute. The Galapagos archipelago consists of islands above a hotspot. It has 13 active volcanoes. Are the islands south or north of the equator? I'd say this south. Is that Tierra del Fuego? No, 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 no that's a long way away. Oh, is it? In the south. South. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually both. It's on both sides. Oh. Oh, some oh. people are nodding there, they already knew that one. So. And, there was um, a clue earlier when I said it was on the equator. Here's a little factoid for you the Galapagos penguin is the only penguin found north of the equator. The first recorded visitor to the Galapagos was Thomas de Belanga, a Spanish noble and the Bishop of Panama, whose ship was blown off course in 1535 while sailing from Panama to Peru. Belanga wrote to the King of Spain describing the islands as dross and worthless. Uh, the first crude map of the islands was made in 1684 by the buccaneer William Ambrose Cowley. What did he name the individual islands after? His children. That would be yeah. reasonable. You don't get points for reasonable, do you? Names of his pet tortoises? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he was, uh, he was named after some of his fellow pirates, or after English royalty and noblemen, so there's things like uh, Lord Chatham and Lord Wood, so that gave rise to Chatham oh. Island and Wood Island, for example. These names were used in the authoritative navigation charts prepared during the Beagle survey under Captain Robert Fitzroy and in Darwin's popular book, The Voyage of the Beagle. But in 1892, Ecuador renamed 13 of the islands after historical associations with Christopher Columbus, such as his ship Santa Maria, so the Santa Maria island. Uh, since 1892, the official name of the islands has been uh, Archipelago de Colón, but that name has never quite stuck, and we just call it the Galapagos. Name, so there we are. Uh, I think it's probably time for you, Kevin, to do your honours. Yeah. Please, thank you. Okay. Right. To be honest, I'm, I'm still thinking about the solid silver catheter. <laughs> Even if it was flexible. It was... Anyway. <clears throat> oh, I'll uncross my legs now. Right. On this day in 1994, uh, the Home Alone film poster, uh, designed by Edvard Munch, <laughs> or as he's known in English, uh, Edward Munch, uh, was stolen from the National Gallery in Oslo. Now, Home Alone um, was released in 1990. It was followed by a series of sequels. I didn't realise how many sequels. It was Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Uh, Home Alone 3, We Left the Kid Behind Again. <laughs> Home Alone 4, This Is Getting Beyond a Joke. <laughs> Home Alone 5, The Holiday Heist. Real one. And finally, I hope, um, uh, Home Sweet Home Alone. <laughs> Now, 
it's, uh, you, you know, um, IMDb, you know, Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes will grade films as to how good they are. The original Home Alone film um, scored 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, that was followed by Home Alone 2, which scored 62%. Home Alone 3, 27%. <laughs> Home Alone 4, 24%. And then a, a real recovery with Home Alone 5, 27%. <laughs> and finally, Home Alone 6, the home suite at Home Alone, 11%. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about that film poster. I'm talking about one of Ed, Ed, Edward Munch's most famous paintings, The Scream. Uh, that one. Uh, I, I don't know whether any of you... I'm seeing one of his most famous paintings, uh, but could you name another one? Scream again? You see, you say that as if you could have said the scream because he did four of them. He did four. He did four. He did two in paint, um, and two in pastel. And it's thought that the pastel ones were in preparation for the actual final, final painted versions. Um, currently, two of these, one paint, one pastel, are in the Munch Museum in Oslo. The other paint version is in the National Museum in Oslo. And the other pastel version is privately owned. Some hedge fund manager somewhere. So Edward Munch was known for his great sense of humour. And the, uh, the screen was part of his uh, Freeze of Life series. And freeze as in a painting, not as in um, you can't afford to have your heating on. Uh, this Freeze of Life series with its themes of sickness, death, fear and melancholy. <laughs> One of, the, uh, one of the paint versions is much larger than the others. It measures seven metres by six metres, and it's known as the, the Monster Munch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, strap in. Uh, the most famous of the paintings, uh, a mere 91 centimetres by 74 centimetres, was stolen at 6.30 in the morning on the 12th of February 1994. This is the one where words are faintly etched into the painting. And I'll, I'll just test my... Does anybody know Norwegian? Right, well, this is what it sounds like. Yegvil veldig gjena ha en is. Which translates as, I'd really like an ice cream. Munch did uh, much of his work in Asgardstrand, a beach resort 40 miles south of Oslo. Uh, and these words are thought to relate to that particular time. The thief stole the painting in only 50 seconds, 50 seconds, which included climbing a ladder, breaking in through a window, snipping the wire holding the painting, grabbing a couple of ice creams from the fridge, <laughs> and then leaving a postcard that said, thanks for the poor security, presumably in Norwegian. Uh, within a few days of the theft, an anti-abortion group had demanded that an anti-abortion film be shown on TV in return for the painting. That didn't happen. Uh, then on the 3rd of March, a ransom note was received for a million dollars. How much? <laughs> for the purpose of the recording... <laughs> I've just pulled a face that looked a bit like the painting. Um, lost me, lost me uh, how much? The, uh, the government refused to pay because of the lack of proof that the demand was genuine. Uh, the good news is the painting was recovered on the 7th of May, uh, less than three months after it had been stolen. It was found, coincidentally, at a hotel in Asgardstrand, which was where Edward Munch 
once longed for an ice cream, as I'm sure you'll remember. The gang who stole the painting were led by a chap called Paul Enger, uh, who was sentenced to six years in prison. How long? <laughs> I've just done that thing again. Uh, he'd earlier spent, believe us, he'd earlier spent four years in prison for stealing another Munch painting, The Vampire, which was an unusual work because it couldn't be seen in a mirror. <laughs> then ten years after our theft, um, in 2004, the screen was stolen again. Technically, between you and me, I think it was one of the others that hadn't been stolen. But for the purpose of the narrative, the screen was stolen again. Uh, mass thieves burst into Munch Museum and pulled the artwork off the wall before grabbing another Munch painting, Madonna, on the way out. All the time, it says, waving a magnum. <laughs> Google it. This time the thieves were arrested in Amsterdam after they were seen smoking marijuana and heard to say that they'd got the munchies. <laughs> so, hopefully now you know the names of some more monk paintings. And see, I called it munch all the way through to just to do the munchies joke at the end. The monk, more monk paintings. I may have overemphasised uh, the ice cream element, okay, but there were definitely some sprinkles of truth in there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, so we're now coming to the second half of the show in only a quarter of the time left to talk about the history of Leicester, or some of it. Uh, this being our fifth show now in Leicester, we've had to dig rather deep for some further history this time around. Question to the panel then, which British monarch was executed on this day in 1554? Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey, or Queen Jane, because she was a queen, not lady. I've had this debate before. So I'm sure you can answer this, if anyone else knows, but what, she has a traditional connection with Leicester. She does. And what is it? She was born in Bradgate. Sorry, No, Bradgate. She wasn't born in Bradgate Park, she went to Bradgate Park then. Oh. Bradgate Park in 1930, when it was given to the city of Leicester. I thought it was the oldest park in Leicester. Well, it's a deer park. Oh, yeah. That was a callback to... It's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to let Joe talk. He knows much more than me. Don't, don't pour water on the fire, but uh, <laughs> recent research has shown, however, that it does indicate she was probably born in London. But I hate to spoil the policy, so... Uh, no, she was born in Leicester. Okay, so uh, what was Lady Jane Grey's claim to the throne? She was, Ed she was Henry VII's great-granddaughter also the great-granddaughter of Elizabeth of York, who was also the daughter of Edward IV, Elizabeth Woodville. Elizabeth Woodville married Thomas Grey, who actually owned the lands in Bradgate and Ruby. Yeah. See, that's why I just listen to what Joe says. <laughs> <laughs> Which means she's also a great-niece of Richard III, who was buried in Leicester. It's a huge family connection. I, I, I can't really add to that. Well, I've got <laughs> notes, but I, there's no point in reading it out. And how long did she reign for? Nine, nine days, or is that a trick question? That's a trick question. It's the way he looked at me. Like hell. <clears throat> no, no. Were we going in nine days? No. Was that somebody else? The official answer. Eleven. Oh, oh, well, I've got thirteen. Um, so people think she reigned for nine days. There were in fact thirteen days between the time of Edward the, Edward's death on the sixth of July, fifteen fifty-three, and her imprisonment in the Tower of London. I don't know if that's that. Mm how you would measure it, but it's probably just more than nine days. But still, 
remarkably less time in power than Liz Truss. <laughs> uh, Jane was charged with high treason, as were her husband, two of his brothers, and the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Their trial was by a special commission chaired by one Sir Thomas White, who has, Ooh, who oh. has a Leicester connection. He's one of the yeah. geezers. So who was he? He's one of the, you know, the, the clock tower. There, ah. are, there are four people at the top. <coughs> yes. Statues on the clock tower. That was going to be my next question. Who are those four people? All oh, right. Well, right. Joe knows this, and I can never know them. <laughs> uh, there's, there's Thomas Wise, uh, there's Simon de Montfort. Which Simon de Montfort? The one that you the one on the clock tower. Oh, no. You Simon Le, Simon Le Bonfoot. Yes. <laughs> uh, who else is there? there? There's a car, uh, Newman. Oldman. Oldman. Uh, Oldman. Oldman. Uh, Gabriel Newton. Gabriel Newton. Newton. Yes. Yes. Newton. That was, that yep. was the and one. the fourth one, uh, big clue, where are we now? Yeah. Roger Wixton. Or was it William Wixton? William, William Wixton. William Wixton, William Wixton. Yes. William yeah, Wixton was um, yeah. an alderman, I believe. And the other ones were younger. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all on fire. They're all on fire. Um, Jane's sentence was to either be burned alive on Tower Hill or beheaded as the Queen pleases. <laughs> what a choice. Uh, burning was the traditional English punishment for treason committed by women, but she opted to be beheaded, and she was buried at the same location on Tower Green within the Tower of London. Well, uh, she yeah. was beheaded for reasons of height, uh, height reason. Um, <laughs> it's not my joke, so if you liked it, it was. But if you groaned, it was an old joke. If it was height, she'd be even smaller after. Well, she was, yeah, it took yeah, her head off. Yeah. Um, uh, who else was executed at the same place in Tower Hill in the preceding two decades? So I'm thinking of, in particular, two ladies. That's history. I'm just looking at you because it's a history, history, history one. Um, where are we going? Mary, no. I'm thinking of uh, Henry VIII. And oh, right. Oh, yes. uh, I often think of Henry VIII. So if you know the sequence of the and six Catherine wives. Howard. Uh, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, correct, yes. And, They're actually and, cousins. And what numbers <laughs> were they? Mm. Yeah. What numbers wives were they then? Anne Boleyn, sorry. You go. Well, it's easy to remember because it's... Um, dead, dead, dead. Yeah. <laughs> dead, dead, dead. Chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate and chocolate. Is it easy uh, to remember? Divor easy divorced, to beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah. But, but then you've got to know which one goes in which mm. order, so it doesn't help at all. Well, Anne <laughs> was the second one, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, so Catherine Howard would have been the fifth. Yes, yes, correct, numbers two and five. In 1536 and 1542, it's only six years between the second and the mm. fifth, which, uh, so he was obviously... He's busy. Uh, yeah, he's busy. <laughs> in, in, indecisive is the word I was getting to <laughs> Um, how old was Lady or Queen Jane Grey when she was executed? Oh, I think she was um, just doing her A-levels. I think she was 17. <laughs> yeah, she was just 16 or 17, which is really quite sad. A-level history, it was more than tragic. Yeah. It wasn't so much in those days, though. That's it, it's one subject that's the hardest, I think, because there's always more to learn. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us a little bit about who stayed at Leicester Castle in Christmas of 1459? Because I know you know a bit about this. I do, yeah. yeah. In 1459, Henry VI was stayed at Leicester Castle over Christmas. Now, Henry VI was known as quite a prude. 
and one of the lords of Leicester thought it'd be quite funny to get a couple of local, a few local lasses to dance in front of it. These local lasses, being Leicester local lasses, decided to bear their bosoms, and they danced in front of the king. The king, being quite prudish, ran off and said, "Fee fee for shame!" and ran off into his, into his quarters. Still happens on the Saturday, that does. Yeah, that's typical Leicester's Saturday night problem. But yeah. Um, which, uh, and, and I think it's, it's been five years now since we've talked about Richard III, so I think maybe we can talk about him a bit more in this show. So Richard of Gloucester, as he was known as well, ruled England from 1483 till his death in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth. Most of our impressions about what kind of man he was are rooted in how he's represented in Shakespeare's play, which was largely based on the propaganda of the Tudor family. So it's a bit like a kind of true or false thing, in, based on what knowledge you know. So uh, he's, he's um, so Shakespeare portrayed him as being quite an unpopular king. So would you say that was true or false, based on what we know now? I'd say probably false. And if there's any members of the Richard the Third Society, in it, definitely false. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and and justification for that. I think it's more of a counterintuitive argument in that, in the absence of the things how he was portrayed in the Shakespeare play. Mm. Um, so when they found him and he's got the scoliosis, so he wouldn't have had a hunchback. Um, You're leaping you know, ahead. You're the, leaping ahead. The, sorry? You're leaping ahead. Oh, that's my second Right, one. okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so, what, so how much of a hunchback was he? Was he a hunchback? That's the second portrayal, isn't it? Um, so no, he may have had one shoulder higher than the other. Mm. Um, but interestingly, Usain Bolt also has a scoliosis of the similar extent to the skeleton of Richard III, so he probably wouldn't have looked that deformed, so it's probably an exaggeration. And, and they do it now in Hollywood film, don't they? they? If they want to portray a baddie, they give them a scar or a, a, a stick or a, you know something. It's, it's very unfair, really. Um, but um, that's probably the psychology that Shakespeare was employing, I think. In, in, interestingly, uh, x-rays of portraits of Richard um, show that they were often altered to have him appear more hunchbacked. Um, at least one contemporary portrait shows no deformities at all. And the accounts from his coronation don't mention anything about his physical characteristics being any different. Um, Obviously, a controversial question is, did Richard III kill the princes in the tower? We could spend all night on this probably. But As Ben <coughs> said earlier, any members of the Richard III Society here? No, he did not kill the princes in the tower. <laughs> it was Henry VII. But if there's no members of the society here, then yes, he probably did. Oh, well, we don't know. So what, what, did he have any motives then? Become king. Well, he already was king, wasn't he? No. Was he not already well, king? No, because his nephew, Edward the Fifth was going to become king, but of course they vanished. And then Richard oh. became king. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the way that Joe says, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> but you just don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, want to become, want to become king. Mm. Don't hold it against him. We'll never know. You know, he got me but my job at the cathedral, so I'm not holding it against him. Yeah. But, but um, it's because Shakespeare's portrayed him that well. It, once it's been yeah. said, it's very hard to, you know, not think that. Yeah. But he would have been a king of his times. Mm. You know, we, we can't look at it through eyes of the 21st century. We have to look at it through eyes of medieval time. And were there not some people who then claimed to be one of the princes later on as well? 
there was Alex. Yeah, there was Richard of. Shrewsbury. Well, there was no. That yeah, there was. Um, what's his face? The one from, came down from Scotland that married the princess in well, Scotland. Well, that's, that's it. That's what I thought what to say. I went to a bookshop and I said I'd like a book by Shakespeare. He said, which one? I said, William. <laughs> <laughs> Richard of Eastwell, that was another one. Because there was a grave, I think, of Richard of Eastwell. And so that was Richard Plantagenet, which was the younger son of Elizabeth Woodville. Mm. Yeah. So there's been quite a few... Um, contenders, but the weird thing is Henry VII had Perkin Warbeck killed, beheaded, murdered but let Lambert Simeon, I think that was his name was, stay and work in the kitchens I believe Good, ah, well, obviously I'm safe ground now then um, <laughs> uh, so, so why was Shakespeare so biased against Richard? What, what well, it, it probably wouldn't have made a good play if it was just bland. You know, he's got, I suppose he's got to have a villain. So it's probably more of a, a sort of literary device, I would have thought. Right. Mm. Like with the latest Richard III film. Mm. I've not seen it. Oh, it's portrayed from one particular perspective. Right. And, and paints the University of Leicester in not a very good light. Oh, that film, yes. Yeah, that film. So I thought you meant a, a historical film about that. Oh, no, 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 not a historical film. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, obviously he was writing under the time of the Tudor monoclase of the first, so it wouldn't have looked so good if he'd sort of tried mm -hmm. to portray Richard in a good light, so I think there's that kind of background to it as well. Uh, conscious that time is almost over for our hour, so I, I think I just probably need to just thank our guests, Joe, Ben and Kevin, for taking part in the show. Thank you very much. I'm back. I'm back. I'd like to thank the Leicester Comedy Festival and Wixler's House for hosting us this evening. The next show will be at the Glasgow International Comedy Festival on Sunday 19th of March. Tickets are available for that show on the festival's website. So I have a final on this day to end the show with. Do you want to make your plug now before I do that? Or do you want to do that uh, again? Oh, if show. you want to stay, we've got... Yeah, yeah, do, yeah, yeah do that. Um, we've got the Fox Comedy Club night <coughs> at 7 o'clock, so feel free to stay on for that um, if you want. No pressure. <laughs> I suppose I might as well say as well, I've got a solo show on Tuesday night. It's Valentine's night, so I'm on my own. If any, any other single person wants to come and see my show, it's at 9 o'clock in Manhattan 34. And um, also, my books are for sale on Amazon. And well, I've got, got, I've, and, and I've got a joke book for sale as well. We could go on online with this. Joe's doing the trial of Peppermint Billy at the... Can I say that? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's, ooh, yeah, 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 ooh, yeah, yeah, at the Guildhall um, in July. But you'll all have forgotten. But just <laughs> keep looking on. You're on holiday. You won't forget, it's going to be all over Facebook, all over social media. Unless it was Richard Armitage. Well, no, it isn't Richard Armitage. You sound like a stalker. She's a stalker. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, if you're all doing plugs. I've put some flyers out for my shows at the, uh, at the Leicester Comedy Festival. Um, at uh, Duffy's on Wednesday. I'm at uh, LCB Depot sort of Saturday, next Saturday evening. And then upstairs at the Western the following Saturday. But it's all on the comedy website. And I'm at the Leicester Archaeological Fair on the 8th, on the 18th of March, doing two talks on Peppermint Billy and Joseph Merrick, and I'm also on a panel talking about historical films and fiction. Just, you know, and, 
And I, I work at the Guildhall, so just pop in. <laughs> pop in, say hello. Uh, I generally have Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. Uh, and I work, work Saturdays. It works in Sports Direct the rest of the time. <laughs> but by the way, um, I work at the Guildhall. I have genuinely been mistaken as the Guildhall's ghost. Um, <laughs> up in the library, they thought it was Samuel Pepys, and then they saw I'd got a pair of Nike shots on. Um, <laughs> again, for the purposes of the recording, imagine Samuel Pepys. <laughs> summarise that section by saying we're all busy people. The final on this day is Abraham Lincoln, so he was born on this day in 1809. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th President of the United States, and here are some quotes from him to end the show with. So, number one. Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Number two. Most folks are as happy as they make up their minds to be. Number three. How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? Four. Saying a tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. <laughs> and the last one. You can fool all the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool with all the people all the time. And now for the second hour of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.